Well, hey, Anthem Church, Bert Alcorn here. I am coming at you right after our very first Big Sunday as a church. Anthem is one church made up of many communities meeting around the city together, practicing the way of Jesus. And we are many communities. We do believe the good gospel stuff happens better in smaller relational contexts that are centered around the table, centered around the word, and uh, are propelling each other towards a life of mission. But we're also one church, believing that we are better together and that there are beautiful things God is doing in the larger community. And so about once a month, we bring all of our communities, as well as anyone who would call Anthem Church home together for a big Sunday. And in those all-together gatherings, we're we're worshiping Jesus together. Uh, We're setting some vision for where we're headed as a church. We're telling lots of stories about what God is doing in the community and genuinely just enjoying each other and remembering that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We did our first one of those uh, yesterday. I'm recording on Monday, so it's yesterday, Sunday. Um, And we're going to do another one in December. Our rhythm is about once a month, Lord willing. And uh, I just want to extend that invitation to you. The next time you see that we're doing one, whether you're in an Anthem community or not, these are beautiful and vital times together as a church community. And I'd love to see you there. But part of the the nature and makeup of those big Sundays is I'm not necessarily teaching through the text, but more just uh, our elder team is providing some insight, some vision, some storytelling. And so what I did want to do today, whenever you're actually listening or watching this, is continue our our movement through the book of 1 Peter, where we've been at as a church for uh, the last couple of months. And we've been really sinking our teeth into chapter 1. And what's been astounding about what Peter's doing so far in chapter 1 is he's been interweaving this uh, like robust theology of salvation with the implications of that salvation, with how we should live in light of what Jesus has done. And so Peter says things like, your salvation has been foreknown. It's a living hope. Your, your inheritance is kept safe in heaven for you, and it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It has been bought with Jesus' blood. And out of that compelling theology for what God has done for you and for me comes like just the, the natural, logical next steps and implications of how we live in light of that theology and that salvation, And what really Peter's been doing here is is not so much saying you should live this way, but he's saying, look at all God has done for you and for me. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what he's brought us out of and taken us out of. And and in light of those realities, this is just how you live in, in a life response to God's move towards you. And our text today is no different. So if you do have your Bible or if you're in a spot where you can grab it, go get it. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to go from verse 22 and we're going to touch into chapter 2 a little bit because these thoughts are linked here as chapter 1 comes to an end. So let's start up in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's already doing the if-then thing once again. Right? This final moment in chapter one is rooted in this before after thing of our life with Christ. And he says, since you have been purified or having been purified, then this is how you live. And that command found in verse 22 is the command to love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. Since you have been purified, love one another 
New Testament scholar and theologian Scott McKnight says this. He says, without solid theology, that is a theology that reflects on the character and actions of God, there is no foundation for ethics or how we live. If one's ethics is not rooted in Christian theology, it becomes nothing more than a pluralistic option thrown into the winds of cultural changes. That is a profoundly important observation about what we are going to find out here in our text today. That apart from Christian theology, apart from the theology of of God and the story of God, there's no real ethics. That is our moral foundation is our theology of God. And without that, our opinion, our option is just one more thrown into the winds of cultural changes. And we've all experienced that in some way before, right? This this seemingly subjective nature to ethics and morality and how we treat one another. And there is and should be something different about how Christians love. It's different from how the world loves because it's based on God himself. It's not based on you or me doing the right thing in any given moment. It's based on God himself and it's based on the work of Jesus. Here's the reality is our ethics wholly hinge on our theology. Our ethics wholly hinge on our theology, which means how we live, how we love, how we treat others, how we process right and wrong is 100% wholly hinged on our theology or what we believe about God. Meaning we can't truly love each other or treat each other well apart from the work of Jesus. It's just impossible. It's impossible. And as Peter is unpacking how we then live in light of the salvation reality he's been unpacking for us over and over again throughout chapter one, he's been helping us see the implications of that salvation, that resurrection life for here and now, not just for eternity later, but for here and now. And this is where we've been so far in chapter one. He's been compelling us to live lives of holiness or set apartness, that because God has saved you, you are distinct and you are different and you are set apart. But not only that, because God has saved you, we engage well with the world that Jesus has sent us to, which means we don't just pull back and we're not just set apart, but we're set apart. And in all of our set apartness, we go back into the world and live missionally proclaiming the way of Jesus. And what we're going to find out today, the third way we live in light of our salvation in Jesus is by loving each other well. By loving each other well. And we already know right off the bat, Jesus has done some work on this subject before. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, Based on how you and I love each other, the world will know who I am. Our new purity in Christ, Peter says, opens the door for a new kind of love to flow. To flow out of us, creating a redemption community. And from here until uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, he's going to be unpacking our sameness. Our sameness. You and I, our sameness. He knows that we're going to have a whole lot of trouble loving each other. 
He knows that's not going to come natural, just like it's not natural to live holy lives or to engage well, wisely, and holy in our exile in the world that Jesus has sent us to. And just the same, he knows it's going to be hard to love each other well. And so what he does here in the next few verses is remind us of all the things we actually have in common. He reminds us of what we share. And so before we start thinking about all the reasons we can excuse ourselves for loving each other poorly, he says, no, 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 remember, you guys have a ton in common. Talking to the church, to Christians, that you have a lot of sameness. You have a lot of unity. You have a lot of togetherness. You have a lot of solidarity and camaraderie with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's going to share three things The stuff we share as brothers and sisters, three things that we share. And the first thing that we share is we all express the same love. We all express the same love. We express this love for each other, earnestly loving each other, this brotherly love. And what's fascinating about this text is Peter actually uses two different words for love here. Now, it's something that we don't really catch in the English language, whereas in Greek, there are many different words to describe many different types of love. Check this out in verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this love and that love are actually two different types of love in the Greek. One is Philadelphia or brotherly love. It's this like camaraderie, brotherly friendship type love that we have for one another. And then that's the first love. And then the second love though, the command is to agape love, this God-like sacrificial love. And that's important. I'm going to go back to this verse right here. So he's like, from a, for a sincere brotherly love, like this friendship camaraderie love that we have for each other, Like that's the context. He's assuming that's the context. And then the command in light of this context is to agape love, to love differently. So we like in the context of your Philadelphia love, agape love one another earnestly. And he's saying that both these kinds of love are crucial and essential to the life saved by Christ and to the community saved by Christ. We share brotherly love because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and have likeness. There are things we share together. But not only that, in that context, we share agape love because we belong to God and therefore we can overlook those differences that might separate others. Two kinds of love that we express and we share together. But that's not the only thing we share. Number two is we all experience the same birth. We all experience the same birth. We share the same love and we have experienced the same birth. We have a common origin story as Christians. Let's keep reading in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for, and he quotes here, Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And he continues on, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
Now picture what Peter's describing right here in these couple of verses. A farmer sowing a seed, but the seed is different. It's no ordinary seed. It's living, it's active, it's imperishable. The seed that Peter described is the living, abiding word of God. Now don't get caught up here on the the word, word, and think he's only talking about the Bible. Because remember, when Peter was writing, the Bible, as we know, would have only been the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew scriptures of the law and the prophets. So he's not just talking about Holy Scripture. And we find that clue because at the very end, he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. What's another word for good news? Gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus that was preached to you. So it's the entire story of God, including Scripture and the message of Jesus Christ. This was the good news that was preached to you. He seems to mean the message of Jesus, this overarching story of God culminating in the person, work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story about Jesus the Messiah, about God sending his son so that through his sacrificial death and his outpoured spirit, people from every nation and every people might be ransomed from their previous life and brought into the kingdom of God. This is our origin story. This is our birth. This is the message that you and I were saved out of our sinfulness, darkness, rebellious, wicked life and brought into the kingdom of life. This word that was the good news that was preached to you is our common origin story. Not one of you found your way into the kingdom of God because you are awesome or you did all the right things, or you grew up in the right household. No, no, no. We were all broken. We were all depraved. Paul says to the Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Every single one of us. And our common origin stories took Jesus dying on a cross to save you and to save me. And so we have commonality when we come together because none of us deserve to be here. But Christ in his grace has saved you and brought you into the story. So we share the same love, we share the same, we experience the same birth. And the third thing we share together as the people of God is we all enjoy the same nourishment. We all enjoy the same nourishment here. Check out the, the word picture that, that Peter gives us here at the very beginning, chapter two. So chapter two, verses one through three, check this out. It says, so, meaning in light of everything I just said, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. The picture here is potent, especially if you have kids, right? Sometimes kids have no appetite because they're eating all the wrong things, right? Chances are, if my kids are not hungry for dinner, it's because they've been snacking on stuff all afternoon. And it may or may not be healthy snacks. And so they're full. And so when the dinner time comes, they're not ready to eat. Their tummies are not hungry because they've been filling up on all the wrong stuff. And Peter uses this potent and simple picture to simply warn us as we're reading to lay aside all those things we might normally fill up on all those wrong attitudes, all those postures that actually hinder growth, hinder your spiritual growth and hinder an appetite for the things of God. 
This is really important. What Peter is saying is the more you are doing these things, the less you will want God. The more you are walking in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, the less you want God. New Testament scholar and theologian Peter David says this. In this couple of verses, what has been gotten rid of, however, is not the grosser vices of paganism. This is not an extensive list of everything you and I have been saved out of but the community-destroying vices that are often tolerated by the modern church. Okay, this is not an extensive list of, of everything that is wrong that needs to be stripped away. These are particularly harmful vices that wreck community. These are the things that pull apart relationships. These are the part that damage relationships and hurt the credibility of the church to be a countercultural community of alternative promise in this world. It's these things right here. And here, Peter, like James and, and 1 John, shows us his concern for community solidarity. Right? Especially when a community is under pressure, there's a tendency to begin bickering and division, which only makes the community that much more vulnerable to outside pressure. Think of what COVID has done to the church this year. It's put pressure on the church. It's put pressure on those inside the church. Has it produced bickering and division? I mean, I, I think so. And maybe I just see a lot more of it than the average person. It has. It has produced division in the church, which only makes the community that much more vulnerable to outside pressures. And so these, according to Peter, are specific vices to fight against because they destroy community. What are those vices? Well, he lists about five here. The first one is malice. Malice is kind of this overarching one. It's one for which all the other vices kind of come under as an umbrella because malice is just simply ill will towards somebody else. It's literally wanting, intending, and doing harm to those inside the community. It's having an evil mind and heart posture towards others. And this is the force that destroys community. It's frequently in the Bible paired up and joined with things like grumbling or bitterness or envy or resentment. It says malice. And he says deceit and hypocrisy, which are kind of linked together. It's lying. It's craftiness. It's using devious words and actions to get whatever we want. It's, it's any type of pretense or deception before God or our brothers and sisters, or any inconsistency between doctrine and practice. Inward thought and outward action. Behavior in the church and behavior in the home or the marketplace. If you are a different person at church than you are at work, that's hypocrisy. If you're a different person at home than you are with your friends, that's hypocrisy. If you're different when your spouse is in the room or not in the room, that's hypocrisy. And Peter says these things destroy community. They wreck community. Envy, a feeling of discontentment when you see what someone else is or has. And you're not content with how God has made you or what he's provided to, to you. And this was some of the motivation behind Jesus' own crucifixion. The Pharisees were envious towards him because of the crowds he was drawing and the power and authority that he had. 
And this cannot mark Christians. And the last one, slander. Criticizing or lying about somebody when they're not around for the purpose of damaging that person's reputation. That's slander. We can throw gossip or murmuring in here as well. Man, these are community-destroying sins that rip apart churches and are rarely dealt with in the modern church. Have you ever been the victim of this? Any one of these? Yeah. (laughs) I'll answer that for you. You absolutely have. Have you ever been the perpetrator of any of these? I'll answer for you again. Yes, you have. Why? Because we're imperfect. It is the responsibility of the church to root out these things, to kill off these things, to call it when we see it, because these things unchecked kill community. Christians are and have been victims of all of these throughout the church history, even today. But the last thing that should happen is the same tools that are used against the church throughout history are used inside the church. Notice as Peter's making his list of no-nos here, he has removed any option for the Christian other than open truth and love among the members of the community. He's left no room to make excuses to slander someone and and couch it in like a prayer request or sharing a concern or whatever. He's left no room for, for envy. He's left no room for malice or deceit or hypocrisy or whatever. He's left no room for that other than open truth and love inside the community. It may be tough love, it may be a rebuke, it may be a, a gentle answer, it may, be, it may be someone telling you something you don't like about yourself, it may be someone calling you out on your sinfulness. I know that's happened to me quite a bit, but this is real love. Open truth is real love in a community. Christians should be able to trust that there are no ulterior motives behind a brother or sister confronting them on sinful moments or actions or behaviors. And know that those things are not being said in their absence. Like, it hurts when someone tells you you've done something wrong, right? It's not good. We don't like that. When we're called out on something. But, but how much better is that than someone, ta- instead of coming to you, going around your back and talking with others about you? I know I experience this as a, as a leader in the church quite often that it's very rare that people actually come to me and ask questions, share concerns, call me out when I have wronged or sinned. I'm not perfect. I will, like, I need repentance just as much as any of you. But often I'm the product of instead of someone coming to me and talking to me, I experience hearing about it through other people. Maybe that's happened to you too. And Peter's saying that is flat out wrong. If you've been saved by Jesus, you do not live like that. The bottom line is this here, and what Peter has been getting at. If these attitudes and actions are in our life, we will lose our appetite for the pure word of God, the gospel of Jesus. And if we stop feeding on the gospel, we stop growing, and we stop enjoying, or to use Peter's language, tasting that the Lord is good. And we will, our appetite for the grace that we find in Jesus 
will decrease. When Christians are growing in the word, growing in the gospel, they're peacemakers, not troublemakers. And they promote the unity of the church. It's been said that Christ will not taste sweet to us until sin tastes bitter. And the reverse is true as well. Christ and sin cannot both look beautiful to us. As the appeal of one rises, the appeal of the other will fall. When we're savoring the bread of life, or to use Peter's language, the pure spiritual milk, we lose our taste and our appetite for the things of this world, for the dusty things of earth. Once we have tasted the goodness of Christ and his gospel, we will long for it more and more every day. And this longing fuels our continued spiritual growth. Gospel grace not only converts us at a single point in time, it also changes us over time to become more like Jesus and to practice what Christ has already made available to us by his grace, to be with him, to become more like him, to do the things he did. Christ will not taste sweet to us until sin tastes bitter. So I have, maybe just to end, a question for you. Which tastes sweeter, Christ or sin? Now, this doesn't mean you're not tempted. We are all tempted. But it's a moment to be introspective, to peer inside your soul, and to genuinely ask what tastes better. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And he was talking about money. He said you can't serve God and money. The principle applies here. You can't serve sin and Christ. Christ will not taste sweet to us until sin tastes bitter. That's important as we think about life in community, as we think about the family God's put us into. We've talked about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. You can't, hate Je- you can't love Jesus and hate the church. It's not how it works. You, you can't do church on your own, right? You need a local community established by God for your growth and sanctification and for others' growth and other sanctification. And so when we're treasuring Christ, when Christ tastes sweetest to us, that actually has implications in how we live well with each other in a world that is not our home. And when sin tastes sweeter than Christ, it doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. The deep, dark, private sin that you think no one else knows about you actually has deep and profound impact on your brothers and sisters who are doing life with you. And not only that, there are specific sins and vices that when they make their way into a church, they rip apart churches. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. I think in light of this text, it's a moment for us to repent of a few different things. And I, and I will lead out, I'm the first to repent of my sinfulness. And it starts with just simply admitting you don't have it all together. We think we do. And so when someone calls us on sin in our life, our whole world falls apart because we think we have it all together. You don't have it all together. 
So when someone calls out sin in you, eat that feedback, take it and say, thank you for sharing with me and not about me to someone else. Help me see my blind spots and grow. Take that. Repent of the reality that you don't have it all together, but often we believe we do. Repent of of your sin that damages community. Repent of the last time you slandered someone in the church. You slandered someone in your community. Repent of when you've had ill will towards that person, when you've lied to them or lied about them. These are community-destroying sins that Peter wants rooted out of the church and will be rooted out if we set our eyes on Jesus when he tastes sweet. It's a moment to repent that you don't have it all together. Repent that you and I all bring specific sins that damage community that we want the Holy Spirit to root out of us. And let's set our eyes on Jesus together as the remedy We can't fix ourselves. We have to partner with the Holy Spirit for any sort of meaningful change. Let's commit to do that. And in that way, each week in November, um, I've been sharing one specific practice I'm inviting you into. Um, Now, throughout November, we're practicing a community rule of life. If you're a part of Anthem, uh, we're practicing a rule of life together, eight simple practices to help us become more like Christ in this season. And uh, each and every week, I'm just highlighting maybe one or two that specifically come out as a meaningful application from whatever scripture we were just in. And uh, we've talked about prayer and fasting already. We've talked about uh, like gratitude already. We've talked about Bible before phone already. And today, uh, the specific practice I want to call you into this week is two things, uh, both kind of in one umbrella here, because they both have to do with community and healthy community is core groups during the week and Sabbath and church on Sundays. Both here have to do with you living life with other people. So connect with, start, or join a core group, which is three to four people, one one gender, so guys together, gals together, that's structured around confession, reading, and encouragement. Make a commitment to be there, to show up, and be ready to care for one another, ready to be honest, ready to be vulnerable. For many of you, if you're not in a core group, the action item is to start one, to grab two, three people from your Anthem community and start meeting together. And there's some resources on our website to get you started uh, and in our app as well. But it's to do intentional community where confession and accountability is a part of the rhythm here. And the second closely linked practice that I'm inviting you into is Sabbath and church on Sundays, right? Keep your routine to practice Sabbath. Literally take one day per week to rest, worship, and have fun. That's what Sabbath is. It's taking a break. It's working. It's toiling for six days and taking one day to rest from work, to worship Jesus, and have fun. Now, if you're saying, I can't take a day off, you know what that's doing? That's exposing your lack of trust in God. As God was creating everything in Genesis chapter one, he did it in six days and rested on seven. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. But along with Sabbath is church together. The practice of coming together to hear from scripture, to worship Jesus, to be stirred by others. And so in this season when it's so easy to be a flake, choose to commit. 
In this season, when it's so easy to redefine church for yourself, choose to submit to the local authority of a local church. Those are huge things. When church can look like whatever you want, when you can be as flaky as you want, choose to commit. In an era where everyone gets to define church for themselves and every definition is up for grabs, commit to a local church and submit to the local authority of that local church. With these two practices, your life will be better. This is not a 10 steps to a better life, but really, it kind of is. If we obey scripture and obey Jesus, you will live more in line the way you were designed and life will be better for you. And especially now in the season that we find ourselves in, healthy community is the key to healthy living. One of the worst things a Christian can do right now and in times of trouble is to isolate, which is our, we have to admit, it's our natural default posture. So when something gets hard, we pull back, we isolate, we regroup, right? And the counter call of scripture is when actually times of trouble hit, you press further into community. When big decisions come, you don't go in a vacuum and decide by yourself. You actually bring more people in and ask them for Holy Spirit wisdom. You get in a fight with your spouse, you don't like keep it private, but you actually tell your anthem community what happened and let them speak into your marriage. When you get fired from your job or you get laid off from your job, you don't kind of go into private wallowing, you press into community. This has been a very difficult year for so many people and it's been made more difficult by isolation. And I'm not griping about the need for physical distancing or anything like that. Because we live in 2020, you can literally at any time call, text, Skype, Zoom, whatever. There are so many options out there to make sure you're in healthy, gospel-centered, accountable community. And I don't know what is happening with so many Christians, why they isolate this year. I have no idea what they're thinking, but I guarantee their life is worse because of it. These two practices press us into intentional, accountable, gospel-centered community. That's my invitation for you this week. So we process through the the sins that are community-destroying that we bring to the table and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. We need others to help identify those things in us. And we need to practice healthy community because so many of us come out of contexts that are not healthy. And these will help you practice healthy community community. All right, that's it for today. I would love to pray for you um, and uh, genuinely ask the Holy Spirit to help us in this endeavor. So let's pray. Jesus, we just confess and admit that we don't have any of this figured out, and we confess and admit that we are often scared of healthy community because we're scared of being truly known and loved. So Jesus, I ask that you would give us strength and boldness to actually take forward motion into healthy gospel-centered community to know that we will be fully known by you and loved by you so we can be fully known by others and loved by others. Jesus, we ask that you would make us a community that is for love and open truth and rooting out these community-destroying sins at all costs. Jesus, we pray for your wisdom. We ask for your help in this present time of need. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.